Welcome to the Standing Up to Pots podcast, otherwise known as the Potscast. This podcast is dedicated to educating and empowering the community about postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, commonly referred to as POTS. This invisible illness impacts millions and we are committed to explaining the basics, raising awareness, exploring the research, and empowering patients to not only survive, but thrive. This is the Standing Up to POTS podcast. Hello, fellow POTS patients and super people who care about POTS patients. I'm Jill Brooke, and this is an episode of the POTS Practitioners. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Kevin Lasko again. You may recall he joined us in the past to discuss neural retraining. He has a clinic in Pennsylvania where he works with the most complex of the complex dysautonomia patients. And after we had that last discussion, a lot of people wrote in asking for more. And Dr. Lasko had also mentioned something that one of our medical advisors had said about neural retraining. It may be more effective if you catch patients earlier in their disease course and start younger. So that got us talking about children and even infants and what an almost pre-dysautonomia might look like in the very young. And better yet, what might be done to help correct course if a child or infant appears headed down that road. So that's our topic today. Dr. Kevin Lasko received his Doctor of Chiropractic in 1992 and then went on to earn quite a number of postgraduate certifications. He is a board-certified chiropractic neurologist, a fellow of the International Academy of Chiropractic Neurology. He has postgraduate certification in childhood neurodevelopmental disorders and also postgraduate certification in movement disorders. He is a regular presenter to the national and international Ehlers-Danlos Societies, the Chiari Foundation, and others. And he has a private practice in Quarryville, Pennsylvania. And he's one of the very few doctors whose websites specifically says they specialize in treating dysautonomia, EDS, MCAS, Chiari, POTS, and all that stuff. So, Dr. Lasko, thank you so much for joining us again. Oh, it's my pleasure. I appreciate you wanting to talk about this. Well, we appreciate how into this you are. I mean, you have pursued quite a bit of additional training in neurodevelopment, in childhood neurodevelopmental disorders. Can I just ask what it is about that area that interests you and keeps drawing you back for more? Well, having four children, you wanted to know what to do with them when they were growing <laughs> up. But, well, it just always interested me. It just really did just the general field of uh, neurology, neurodevelopmental processes and all that. And it was just something that once I got into, it just kind of spread. The wings opened up and I just got into a lot of different fields of neurology. And that's just uh, one of them that I took. And it, it's really neat when you delve into it. And I think that's what we're going to do today. So I'm kind of excited. Yeah, I'm really interested to hear about sort of your view on the onset of dysautonomia symptoms in young people. I think you've mentioned that sometimes really young people can show symptoms, like how young and what kind of symptoms are we talking? Yeah, this is probably not going to be mainstream type of stuff. 
And I'm not saying that everybody that displays these things are going to go on to develop this autonomia pods or stuff like that. But if it becomes a chronic thing, that's little warning bells, in my opinion, because it, when you do a, a history on a patient and you ask them about their past or if their mom is there, if it's an adolescent, you ask them, there are certain things that like always show up in the history or if you talk to the parents. I mean, it's very interesting when you delve into it and it could be things like, boy, were they colicky. My gosh, they couldn't be put down. They always needed to be held. They didn't sleep well. They had their days and nights mixed up. They were the ones that always had to come home from pre-K or kindergarten with tummy aches or headaches. They didn't meet all of their developmental goals. And, and it just kind of goes down the line. And again, not saying that if you have one of these, that that means that you're going to have a problem later on. But there are some developmental goals. That, I mean, they're there for a reason. Just an example. And this one kind of really just blew my mind when I heard this. But I was talking to a patient and her mom was there. And she had some problems with coordinated motions. Like she didn't march very well. She didn't swing her arms when she walked. And she was, I don't know, 10 or 12. And I started to ask mom about different motor skills when she was growing up and all that. And she goes, yeah, it was interesting. She wasn't walking until like 16 months, which is really, that's, that's a long time to not walk, you know, to not start to walk. And I said, what did the pediatrician say? And he basically said, well, she'll eventually walk. And I'm like, well, we're humans. Yes, we're going to walk, but she's four months behind. And now fast forward, when I see her, she has a ton of motor problems. She, she doesn't pattern well. So it's just those little things that I think as you're going to the pediatrician or you're going to your family doc or whatever, there are little warning signs that are there that should go ding, ding, ding. Something isn't quite right. You know, why does Sally's face always get red and just get red after gym when everybody else's calms down? Why is it two hours later, her face is still red? Those are things that I just think are warning signs that you should at least start looking at. Do you have some autonomic problems going on? And I don't care if you're you know, a year old or 12 or nine, you really have to be cognizant of those. Okay, interesting. So these milestones that little kids and babies are supposed to hit are, you know, things that are maybe so small that it would never occur to me to even think about them. Now, I'm not a mother, but just to make sure that I understand what you're talking about with these milestones, is it things like crawling on time, standing up on time, holding your head up like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And even before those type of things, and I touched on it a little bit, but it's not typical for a baby not to want to feed, whether it's at the breast or the bottle. It's not typical that they always throw things up. It's not typical that they have their days and nights mixed up. Even before these goals are supposed to be met, there could be some signs before. But yes, to, to your question, yeah, things like 
are they crawling on time? Are they lift, lifting their head on time? Do they have good core strength when you like grab their hands, they're on their back and you kind of pull them up? They should be able to do like, like a little crunch <laughs> to stabilize themselves and you pull them up. Those are all really important things like the startle reflex, which almost all of the dysautonomic patients have that I see. That should be, and they use the word integrated at about six months, eight, eight months, meaning that baby shouldn't get one of those, you know, startle responses where their hands go out and their feet go up and they take a breath and they just kind of stare at you. That should be gone within six, seven months. But how many people that are adults still have that? That's so funny that you say that because I'm famous in my family, you know, if, if the kids are playing hide and seek and I play with them, even if I'm looking in the last place where I know they have to be, when I see them, my body goes crazy and I have that crazy startle reflex. And, and you're saying that was supposed to have been gone at like under a year old? Oh yeah, definitely before a year old, between six and eight months, yes. Mm -hmm. And you see that pretty often in your POTS patients. Absolutely. And if, if you understand where that reflex generates from, and it's in the midbrain, it's in the mesencephalon, big word doesn't matter, it's in your brain, that already tells me that that area of that brain isn't working the way it should. Because if, if it's getting the right input or the correct output, you shouldn't have that. Now, I'm not saying if you're in a fun house where it's dark and that clown jumps out at you, you shouldn't startle. I'm talking about some of the patients and maybe like yourself where, you know, if they hear a loud truck coming at them, you'll see that response. Or if somebody opens a door, they'll jump. That's not a normal response. And typically, at least in my practice, I see those people having very poor autonomic function, whether it's the higher sympathetic tone, the dysautonomia with the high heart rate, the difficulty delivering blood to the extremities, the gut doesn't work, the brain fog, their pupils are dilated, they're sensitive to sounds, all of that stuff. Yeah. Okay, fascinating. And I think we'll come back in a minute to more about what's going on with that. But you had mentioned sensory inputs. And, you know, that's a term that I never thought about very much until I started speaking with you. Like to me, sensory inputs just means the stuff that I see or touch, taste, smell, or hear. End of story. But to you, I think that's not the end of the story. I think maybe it's just the start of the story. So I'm wondering if you can talk about how you think about sensory inputs, maybe starting with just your definition. Sure. I mean, uh, sensory input is you were 70% right <laughs> when you said those, <laughs> those things. Those are all really Im important. I mean, you need to be able to see things, hear things, smell things, taste things. But all of those can really be shut off in certain times of the day. Like if you close your eyes, you don't get any more sensory input from your eyes, right? watch some of those cooking shows on TV and they give the contestants an orange and they can't tell it's an orange or a pear or an apple. And hearing 
like when you fall asleep, you don't hear the clock ticking or you don't hear like the background fan or, you know, those type of things. But there's another sensory aspect that is the most constant. You can't get rid of it. It's firing 24-7 when you sleep. And that's that proprioceptive kinesthetic input that you get from your muscles and joints. Like right now, I'm looking at you and your your right hand, your fingers are kind of curled up a little bit. Your brain is getting input that your fingers are curled. 24-7, you're nodding your head right now. You're firing different sensory receptors in your neck to tell your brainstem, your cerebellum, your vestibular system, your brain, that you're moving. So the, the two things you, you need for your brain is to resist gravity, because gravity isn't going away anytime soon. And movement is a huge input coming in, into the brain and that feedback you get from moving your muscles and your joints. And that's 24-7. And that's huge for brain development. Huge for it. Is that what the vestibular system is? We hear that word. <laughs> it's part of it. The vestibular system really doesn't kick in unless you move for the most part, whether it's moving your head right to left, up and down, moving forward, like going in a uh, one of the little trams that are on the, uh, like in an airport and you just, you know, you hop on and you don't have to walk and you go, going up in an elevator, parts of your vestibular system kick in. So it's it's part of it, but you still have that tonic or constant firing from your muscles, even if you're just sitting there, like even when you're asleep, if you're curled up and say your your right leg is bent more than your left, different areas of your brain are going to know that because there's going to be a little more tension on your hamstring on one side and your quad on on the other. So you're constantly getting that input from the muscle and joint, and you're constantly getting input from how you move or when you move, because even when you're asleep, you're still breathing, your heart's still beating. For most of us, your gut should still be move, moving a little bit. Some of the dysautonomia patients, they have problems with, with, with that, obviously. But you're constantly getting this input, whether it's from your somatomotor system, like your muscles and joints, you're also getting it from your internal organs. So you're constantly getting this input coming in that you really can't stop. And that's what's, I think, special about that, because the rest of it, the sight, the hearing, the taste, the smell, you could kind of inhibit those or kind of shut those down or those can be shut down. This system, it's really hard for your brain not to know where your muscle and joints are, doesn't get input from your heart or your gut or your breathing. Interesting. Okay. So what do all of these sensory inputs have to do with a growing human? I think the last podcast we did, I gave that example where you can have two blonde hair, blue eyed parents give birth to a blonde hair, blue eyed person in the middle of like Kansas in a cornfield. Okay. But if all that child is exposed to is Mandarin Chinese, guess what they're going to speak? They're going to speak Mandarin Chinese. Doesn't matter what the genetic code is, that sensory input from hearing and visual and all that, 
that's what they're going to speak. And you expand that to like your sensory input from those muscle and joints. I think there's a dovetail, not always, but there is with the EDS population and POTS and dysautonomia. EDS patients, their muscle and joints move a little funky. The joints just don't move the way they should, whether it's in the upper cervical area, whether it's your shoulders, your hips, whatever. And the way the brain works, and this is very basic, but like if you want to move and pick something up, your brain says, okay, I want to pick something up. It says, I should expect this to come back from my left hand picking up the coffee cup that's right next to me. If it matches, everything's good. Like one plus one is two. But if you move and say you hyperextend that elbow or say you hyperextend a finger, it's not expecting that. And that's a mismatch. The brain has to accommodate and adapt to that to say, is that your new normal? Or does it have to do that every time that you move to pick up anything or walk or reach for a coffee cup or reach for a plate or hold your significant other's hand, whatever. It's constantly recalibrating instead of saying, oh, I did this before correctly, just go ahead and do it. I hope that makes sense. I think so. So to see if I understand this correctly, tying it back to some of those symptoms that you mentioned that you might see in very young people, for example, if they have their days and nights mixed up, or they don't walk until much later than normal. Are you saying that that is probably a sign that some of this sensory input is messed up? I would say so, yes, because ultimately, I know with a lot of the dysautonomic patients, POTS patients, the treatment for them is generally treating the end organ. Meaning if you're a little tachycardic, they're going to give you generally a beta blocker. If your gut is, isn't working, they're going to give you Linzess, Miralax, some, something to get it going. They're looking at the end organ, but there's something in the brain, brainstem, higher centers that's telling the heart to beat at 120 beats a minute when it should be beating at 80. If you would give me just a second here, because I think this is going to make sense. The input from the muscle and joint comes in and it goes to different areas of the brain. It goes to the, the sensory cortex, areas 3A and B, that doesn't matter. It goes to another area called one and two in the brain, but then it fires to the motor area in your prefrontal area in your brain. And your prefrontal area is the CEO of our body. It tells everything else kind of what to do. It puts it in context. Are you safe? Are you not safe? Is the input coming in okay? Is it not? And if that input from the muscle and joint isn't correct, that whole loop is going to be a little off. And if you're a little off with that loop, your system cannot function correctly. And this is a hard concept to get, but when your brain works pretty well, the end output is inhibitory. It wants to be as efficient, effective, energy conserving as it possibly can. And when the brain starts to kind of break down a little bit from function, 
you start to see this lack of inhibition. This is a hard concept. I know it is, but you see this lack of inhibition and things like your sympathetics should not be able to run and cause your heart rate to be 120 beats a minute. When your brain works well, you start to see that heart rate come down. And that's what you see in children. They're born heart rate 120, 130 beats a minute. Why does their heart rate start to come down as they develop? And when you get teens or something, it's in the 70s or 80s or, or, or 60s. That's a good developing brain. It's working correctly to say, heart, why are you beating at a buck 20? You don't have to be more efficient, be more effective. We're going to inhibit you to only beat at 80, but still be able to deliver blood and all that to the tissues. And that's where the startle reflex comes in also, right? Absolutely. Because if you have that lack of inhibition, you can't inhibit or be able to perceive, hey, that's just a car going by. I could chill out. It's, I don't know what that thing is. And boom, you have that little reflex. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm going to try to summarize this and see if I have it. So sensory inputs coming from all of these different things, everything from the normal senses we think of, sight, smell, sound, to the sensory that I never thought about before, such as proprioception, where your limbs are, what your muscles are doing, maybe even what your gut is doing at the moment. Those kinds of things are all processed in the brain and they're supposed to be handled in a nice efficient way that lets your body stay relaxed and let these inhibitory mechanisms keep you from having too much of a crazy sympathetic fight or flight response. But in dysautonomia patients, it looks like this whole system is not working quite right. And so the end result is that you have some sensory processing issues. You have too much fight or flight and some of these reflexes that are supposed to be inhibited are not. Boy, you could just just rubber stamp that. That was perfect. <laughs> you are 100 percent correct. I've been lucky that I've gotten to speak with you a few times and it's definitely <laughs> taken a while to sink in, but it definitely is so interesting because as you say, with this understanding, the problem is in the processing of the senses. And so just treating that end organ, such as the high heart rate with a beta blocker is going to show you results in changing how that end organ reacts, but it's not going to fix the underlying issues with the sensory processing. Is that right? Correct. Because the, the reason the heart is beating too fast is because the cortical areas, whether it's the brainstem, the cerebellum, the vestibular system, the midbrain, the basal ganglia, the thalamus, the cortex, the output of those especially from the cortex, isn't correct to inhibit the heart. If you just give a beta blocker, yep, the heart rate's going to slow down generally in 90% of the patients, but the brain still is not functioning correctly because it's still telling the heart, you got to beat at 120 because I can't inhibit you to function correctly. You need to, in my opinion, with these patients, 
you really need to look at what are the central controls or what are the central mechanisms or is what they call it or the uh, command center is i think some of the words that they use in some of the articles now what's going on in the brain that's causing the sympathetics not to be inhibited so they run so you get a high heart rate your gut doesn't work you don't sleep you startle all of that Okay, so how do you do that? <laughs> I know last time we spoke a little bit about your approaches, but specifically, yeah, how do you figure out what is going wrong and try to correct it? Yeah, starting with like children, I like to look at, are they meeting all of their developmental goals? I mean, that's that's a great thing to, to do because that's a, a loop that we've been talking about that needs to be developed, whether it's like you said, lift, lifting their head up and doing like the little Superman thing where they lay on their tummy and they kick their feet like a frog and they move their arms. That's great for your postural muscles. Do they roll over correctly? Are they always rolling just to one side? I mean, these are just these little tells like, do they always roll to the left? Do they always roll to the left? They roll, you roll them to the right, they start screaming and all that stuff. That's a vestibular thing. You know, that's a vestibular thing. Now, a lot of people, because I tell this, you know, a lot of other docs or whatever, and they're like, oh, you know, they'll eventually get there. Yep, they probably will. But is it in the time frame? And are you patterning things wrong? When you have that little sapling there of a child, I would much rather fix a sapling in the backyard that's growing crooked than a 20-year-old tree. So do they roll right to left equal amounts? Do they always turn their head to one side to nurse or take a bottle? And if you do it the other way, they just don't latch on or they don't take the bottle. Those are little things that... I look at to say, hey, why why don't they like to roll to the right or turn their head to the right to nurse? You know, could it be that they're not firing that side? Could it be? And you just kind of go down a checklist uh, to see why isn't that going on? Does it correlate to their eyes not moving correctly? Do they have that writing reef? When they, you know, if you rotate their head to one side, do their eyes go opposite or does it stay with, with the head? All those things are really important because that's neurology. I mean, that's neurology 101 for an infant. So if you're seeing these abnormalities, does it make sense when they kind of get to the place where they start to crawl, right? That why do they only move the one arm and the one leg and the other hip kind of goes out and they can't pattern the normal right arm, left leg, left arm, right leg, but the right leg is kind of out to the side? Hmm. Does that have anything to do with them not being able to turn to the right or nurse to the right or whatever? Or not, you know, roll to the right? I think it does. Yes. So how old does a child have to be before you can do something to try to help them? I know that last time we spoke, you had mentioned, you know, exercises that you have your patients do. I, I could tell you from my experience with my kids <laughs> from birth, I started to have them track 
their eyes right to left, up, down, all, all of that. I would roll them right, roll them left. I fine-tuned some of that now because that was 24 to 17 years years ago. But yeah, I mean, I I did that because I knew that's when we were starting all the neurology stuff and I was really getting into it. I was doing a lot of that stuff years and years ago because I knew just from my background, my education, that you need to have your right and left side function equal. You know, so you could do that from birth. The the thing that I kind of honed now with experience is you could pick out which side might be functioning okay and which side might be functioning a little bit lower. And just so the audience understands it, it would be like if my right bicep is 30% weaker than my left, if I just go to the gym and just do bicep curls with the same amount of weight, same amount of reps, both are going to get stronger and both are going to get bigger, but I'm still going to have that 30% deficit with my right to left side, right? Wouldn't that make sense to build my right side up, get it equal with my left, and then do bilateral bicep curls? That's really interesting. Do you have any more examples of things (laughs) that you do with young people? Yeah. I mean, you know, most of the kids now you ask them to, to march in place and they should be able to, in a heartbeat, go right arm, left, left leg up, left arm, right leg up, and just march. You would be amazed if you asked a lot of them to do that, how they'll go same arm, same, same leg. Why does that matter? Well, that's not good. When you're done with this, I, I want you to get on your hands and knees and try to crawl, but try to crawl with your right arm and right leg at the same time. I can see how that would go wrong. <laughs> Make sure there's nothing sharp or you can hit your head on because you're going to fall, <laughs> right? But that goes into basic motor patterns. Well, at least from my perspective, why do you think some of the dysautonomic potsy type of patients don't resist gravity very well, or they're clumsy, they bump into things. They don't have good basic motor patterns to fall back on when they start doing more complex things. You can't teach a little kid that still thinks an eight is a snowman algebra, but you see that a lot with these protocols. You know, I don't like that word, but these protocols that are out there you know, they're adolescents, they're developed, they're two arms, two legs, a brain, they're, they look fine. Go exercise, go jog, go run. If their motor patterns are bad to begin with, you're asking a system to work harder than what it should because you don't have the basic foundation down. And then you go back to that input that they get from the muscle and joint, if those basic patterns aren't good, they're overworking when they try to do something complex. And what do you think that does to your autonomics? It puts you back into that fight or flight because the loops are not correct yet to do something more complex. And I think last time we spoke, you had kind of had this metaphor of if the body can't do it on its own. It's like you're trying to get children to do something. And if they don't do it right, 
then the adults will come in and just do it for them. And that's like the frontal cortex having to come in and do work that lower systems should have been able to take care of. And so now you're doing things in a very inefficient way that just takes too much brain energy. Right. And just think about that. I mean, you shouldn't have to think to march in place or crawl. That should be like waking up in the morning. If you really have to think about it, and if you really want to tax them while they're doing some of the marching or crawling, have them do math problems. Have them say every other month of the year, starting with January, you will see them freeze. They will literally be marching and say, hey, count backwards by sevens from 101. And they will go 101 and they will just stop. You know that it's called dual tasking. When that happens, you know that their frontal cortex isn't playing nice with the basic motor centers that are a little bit lower in your brain. You know what's interesting about that? I'm a nutritionist and I'm remembering a study about willpower where they had people either just walk down a hallway and get offered a piece of cake. There, I think it was their choice of, of uh, some junky treat or a healthy treat. These were all subjects who were saying that they were intending to be more healthy. Or the other group had to walk down the hallway doing a mental task similar to what you said, you know, counting back from 100 by sevens. And the group that was having to do the mental task that was using up a lot of brain energy from their frontal cortex was a lot more likely to take the cake than the healthy treat because the thinking was that their willpower was just a lot weaker when their brain was busy doing something else. So now you're making me wonder if dysautonomia patients who are constantly having to kind of override these more basic things with using a lot of brain energy are at that disadvantage as well. Maybe I have an excuse for when I break down and eat junk food. <laughs> See, this, this is so cool, Jill, because remember when I talked about the, a good functioning brain, will the output overall will be an inhibitory one. So you know cake isn't the best thing for you, but you can't inhibit that urge to have the cake. So you have the cake. Interesting. Yeah. It's kind of the same thing with a lot of, and again, I don't want to put a big blanket, but generally a lot of your dysautonomic patients, they are biased, if you will, to maybe having a little bit higher anxiety, maybe a little OCD-ish, maybe a little ADHD-ish type of problems. Well, that's a lack of inhibition. Some of them have little tremors or things like that. That's a lack of being able to inhibit your motor system. The OCD-ish that's a lack of you being able to inhibit that obsessiveness or the compulsion, whatever it is. That's so interesting. Okay, so like what kinds of objective evidence have you seen that the sensory-based treatment approaches can affect the autonomics? Like, I know that tons of your patients say they see huge improvements, but like, what have you been able to measure objectively that's different? Yeah, I would say 95% of my patients 
live with a pulse ox on their finger or both sides while I'm doing this because it's hard to, to sit there with a stethoscope on the gut <laughs> to see if you're getting more bowel sounds. You can use pupillary sizes because usually if the pupils are, are dilated, that's a little higher sympathetic tone. But I just like a heart rate because the patient or the significant other or the mom or dad that's there, I kind of wave them over. And if I'm doing, we'll just say some eye exercises and they see patient's heart rate at 95 beats a minute and you start doing some of the eye exercises and you see it go down into the 70s, you stop, it goes back up into the 90s, you do it again, it goes back into the 70s. Could be lucky, but I don't think so. <laughs> wow, so it's just that obvious and that immediate. That's a neurologic change that you're making in some of those loops that we're talking about to create better functioning brain patterns to have the brain function more normally, which is to have a, an inhibitory output for, so the heart can function normally just in that example. Yeah. And it could be with sensory input. It could be with motor patterning. It could be with any sensory input. You just have to figure out kind of like we said last time that during the neurologic exam and going back to like the little children or the infants, hey, why do they always roll to the left? Why do they always want to turn their head to the left? Why are they always going left? What happens when you turn them right? Can you get a better balance between right and left cerebellum, right and left vestibular, right and left cortex to let them function better from an autonomic standpoint? If they're a little bit older, why is it when they walk, we'll say they only swing their one arm and they don't swing the other arm? That's a cortical thing. You do exercises and improve the arm swing, we'll say, is that going to make the brain work better? Yes, we know a better functioning brain creates more control over those descending, the pathways that fire down. So you function better. So you create more of those those inhibitory pathways to say, you don't need to beat at 110 beats a minute, you could beat at 80. Boy, it's crazy how basic it all is. Yes, <laughs> I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna bite my tongue there <laughs> because the answer, the answer is not a med. And, and I know that might step on toes a little bit, but it's much easier it's much easier to go that, that way. But again, you're looking at end organ stuff generally. I mean, if you have a 12-year-old girl coming in and has passed out a couple times during sports, headaches, all of that stuff, she's probably, and you delve into the mom or dad that's there and say, hey, did she have this when she was little, this when she was, oh my gosh, yeah, we had that. She was colicky. She didn't want to be put down. We always had to get her from daycare and school because of tummy aches and headaches. She's had a problem for 10 years, right? It's just really manifesting itself now to something that everybody's worried about because you pass out. That's not a good thing. Hey, let's get this looked at. It takes time to rewire that because she's been getting that one plus one is nine coming in for 10 years. That takes a little bit of time. It does. 
Right. And so I think that's why I know that that you are kind of famous in your community for helping people who already are pretty far gone and who have failed a lot of the conventional treatments, but that I know other people have said it and you've said it as well, that the younger you can work with someone, the easier it might be to help them. But I imagine we have parents listening who are saying, hey, what can I do to help my kids have the healthiest possible sensory processing systems? Or we have listeners who themselves have autonomic problems and they're maybe worried that they're going to pass that on to their kids. So are there things that parents can do pretty early on to help their kids develop a good sensory processing system? Yeah, I mean, and, and that comes back to you could Google it, you could get a book, make sure they're meeting all of their developmental goals. That's really important. I mean, it really, really is. I know the internet has a bunch of things you can do with reflexes and things like that. What I found is that's kind of like doing the bicep curls with one arm being 20% weak. <laughs> you're going to see improvements, but you're still going to have maybe a bias to one side versus the other. And that's where you really have to get, in my opinion, a kind of a sidedness to where is the default? Like where where is the air occurring? Is it, and this gets really deep and this is where I would love to just say, I would, I would do this in a heartbeat. Every, everybody do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and it's gonna be great for your kids. That's kind of like the protocol for POTS. It'll work for some, but the ones that it doesn't work for are the ones that, well, hey, I'm gonna try it maybe at another place, or I'm gonna do this maybe with somebody else. If you keep doing the same thing over and over again and expect the different result, we all know what that definition is. Your brain and your nervous system develops in certain steps and certain stages. And you're not supposed to skip over one just because it makes you look really good because you're now walking at 10 months and everybody's have, having a party because you did it. Nope, they didn't crawl. That's a huge brainstem kind of cross cord type of mechanism that you need as you grow up to stabilize yourself and be able to do things correctly going forward. If you miss that, it's kind of like going from first grade to third grade and you miss second, you might be okay, but you might need second grade as well. So interesting. So interesting. You're making me think about all the little things that matter so much that probably most of us never give a thought to. I would agree with that because it's just like, you know, if you're putting together a puzzle, if you get all but one or two pieces, the puzzle's really not done until you put those other pieces in it. So you just want to make sure that you're meeting all of the goals. And sometimes you just, again, going back to that one scenario, well, that person will eventually walk and they're 15 months. That something had to be done when they noticed that they weren't crawling on time or the motor patterns weren't correct. That had to be done months before you got to the point where why isn't little Susie walking and she's 
14 or 15 months old. You, you missed a window of opportunity there. A real quick story, if you don't mind, and this this will kind of do it. I had a, a friend of mine, had a baby, and he knew I had some background in this, and we were talking about it. And um, he said, you know, Johnny's starting to walk. And I'm like, wait a minute. He's right around 10 and a half months old. I said, did he ever crawl? And he's like, nope. We literally spent a good month. And I've never heard more screams and cries from a baby because we literally repatterned that cross crawl. Like we laid him on his back, right arm, left leg, left arm, right leg, and just did it for a long time. Gave little Johnny a break, came back, did it came back, did it for a good month. I mean, we, we really did. And he, so he was walking for a good three or four weeks before we started this. We actually did some of these cross crawl things. We did some vestibular ocular exercises, all of that. And he started to crawl, right? He stopped walking. He would not walk. He would crawl around the house. He would crawl, crawled like a maniac. I mean, quick. I mean, he went all over the place. And eventually at about 12 and a half months, he almost relearned how to stand up and walk. Like if during that time frame, if you actually put him up to stand, he would sit down and crawl. So I think we saved him. <laughs> from walking and missing that developmental goal. And like right now, he's, and this was a couple years ago, super athletic little kid, runs fine, is it can hit the ball, catch the ball, the whole thing. Would have he been able to do that before? I don't know, but I know that he met all of those patterns in a more correct time frame, and he didn't skip anything going forward but it was pretty cool because he would not walk like once we got him crawling he would not even stand up until he finally did at about 12 and a half months fascinating fascinating it was really really cool well i'm sure people are going to be curious to know more about you where can they find you online if they want more information about your clinic yeah, my website is drkevinlasco.com and my uh, email is lasco.hemispheres, like two sides of the brain, at gmail.com. And again, the offer is there. If you have some questions or some something like that, I don't charge for a quick consultation on the phone. It's so important for these little ones to develop correctly, especially if you might have some EDS thoughts in the background of this. And if they're having some problems, it's so much easier to, to fix. And I use that kind of with air quotes to fix these problems before they become permanent or what they call plasticized in that system. Because um, it's doable, but it's just harder to, to undo a system that might have been in there for 8, 10, 12, 20 years. If you see something wrong, if you fix it pretty quick and if you reinforce it with the right inputs, you could change it the other way just as easy. 
Great, great info. Dr. Lasko, thank you so much for sharing your time and knowledge with us. Again, you have so many ideas that are new to me, but make a lot of sense. And just, I'm excited to, to get more people thinking about this. So we so appreciate you. You are more than welcome. And um, thanks very much for the interest and the time. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. And hey, listeners, thank you for listening. Remember, you are not alone. Stay strong and please join us again soon. As a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast is not medical advice. Consult your healthcare team about what's right for you. This show is a production of Standing Up to Pots, which is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. You can send us feedback or make a tax-deductible donation at www.standinguptopots.org. You can also engage with us on social media at the handle Standing Up to Pots. If you like what you heard today, please consider subscribing to our podcast and sharing it with your friends and family. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thepotscast.com. Thanks for listening.